Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. If you need a Bible, Mike and Tommy are fighting over who gets the opportunity to give you one. Romans chapter 2. We've spent two weeks so far talking about the wrath of God, which we defined as a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's own nature. It's not the only definition. Probably not the best definition, but it's, but it's a good working definition. Wrath, a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's own nature. We've been going slow in this section because we really want to lay hold of this concept. We want to understand it. We've been going slow. We're going to keep going slow. Because if we don't understand what Paul is saying about wrath, not much of what he says afterward is going to make sense. Not much sense, at least. Not the sense that he wants us to glean and, and take away. Because a lot of what Paul has to say in the coming verses, in the coming chapters of his letter to the Romans, has to do with salvation. And if we don't understand the wrath that we're saved from, we're never going to appreciate what we're saved to. We won't even understand why we needed saving in the first place. That's why we've been talking about it for the last two weeks. That's why we're going to talk about it for a few more weeks. But this morning, we're going to take a bit of an intermission. We're coming back, but we're going to step aside for just a week to look at another concept, a related concept, actually. A concept that, quite frankly, people struggle with every bit as much as they struggle with the concept of God's wrath. This morning, we're going to look at God's goodness. Paul's got more to say about wrath. But this morning in chapter 2, verse 4, picking up where we left off, Paul brings up, he makes reference to the goodness of God. On his way to getting where he's going, he just throws it out there like we know what he's talking about. And I'm not sure we do. So we're going to stop and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about, here's your outline today, Paul's assumptions about the goodness of God, the world's agitation when we bring up the subject of the goodness of God. We're going to look at how God in his word affirms his goodness. The Bible's affirmation of the goodness of God, and then we'll finally talk about our application. What do we do with the goodness of God? Romans 2 verse 4, which is now on the screen behind me, but I want you to glance back at verse 3, just to remind ourselves where we were. Paul, last week, was talking to us about the invisible tape recorder. Remember? Telling his readers that every time we point a finger and judge someone for their sin, there's three pointed back at us. Our ability to judge someone else condemns us because in judging someone else, we're saying two things. We're saying good and evil exist, and we're saying evil must be punished. That was last week, right? So now having said that, having asked in verse 3, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Having asked that, Paul goes on to ask verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering? Is that maybe what's going on? Not knowing 
that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Paul's still talking to the same imaginary reader he was addressing last week. The one who thinks that all of Paul's ranting and rambling about wrath is great because there's other people out there who need to hear it. Pagans and liberals and Muslims and the unwashed masses. Tell them, Paul. Paul's still talking to that same reader. And he's still pushing the same point that he advanced last week. He's still asking that reader in Rome, so what about you? I know about them, but what about you? Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Do you not know that God's goodness is intended right now, right here, to lead you to repentance? Paul's still answering his reader's objections. Paul's still engaging in this imaginary debate. And at this point, Paul's reader, we presume, says, me, what about me? I don't know what you're talking about, wrath? Despising goodness? This, this, is, this doesn't make sense to me. Things are going great for me. I don't see God's wrath in my life. God loves me. Yeah, he does, Paul's answering. God loves you. But do you really think the fact that things are going so very good for you right now, that you're healthy, that you're comfortable, that you're peaceful, do you really think that means that God approves of everything that you're doing, everything that you're thinking, everything that you're reading, everything that you're watching, everything that you're choosing? Do you think God approves of everything that you're about? If you do, you're a fool. Paul's comment in verse 4, and then and the, the tone that we can read into it, tells us something about Paul's assumptions around God's goodness. First of all, the fact that he just drops that in on his way to getting where he's going tells us that he assumes his reader is familiar with what the Bible says about God's goodness. We said last week he probably has in mind in this section of the letter, particularly his Jewish audience. And he would certainly assume that they were familiar with Hebrew scripture, with Old Testament scripture. Scripture like Exodus 34, 6 that tells us God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Pray for Gail, by the way. Um, he has retired from his traveling speaking ministry and has moved into a, a minimally assisted living facility. Um, after the death of his wife, Ada, um, he said, you know what, I want to move one more time in my life and I want to move where, where people will move with me and the support will increase as I need it. I have no doubt his ministry is going to continue, but he probably will not visit Calvary, Wichita again in person. But, but, but notice back to Romans 2 verse 4. Notice the parallel between what Paul says here and what God says there. Paul talks about goodness, by which he, he's encompassing God's mercy, his grace, his love. He talks about forbearance, God being slow to anger, holding back his wrath, long-suffering, 
his patient restraint. It's not a coincidence. These concepts, these qualities are often spoken of together, Old Testament and New Testament. They're spoken of together because they coexist together. They're attributes of God in harmony with one another. And together, collectively, they remind us the goodness we enjoy in this life is not necessarily because God approves of all of our choices. It's not even because God is indifferent of the way that we're living. It may well be that we're experiencing God's goodness in spite of our choices. Another definition of God's wrath, wrath is what happens when divine holiness meets human sin. And if that were God's only attribute, none of us would be here. But sometimes God delays his wrath with forbearance, verse 4, and long-suffering. Sometimes God allows us to continue experiencing goodness far, far past the point where any sane God would allow it in the hope that it would point us back to him in the hope that it would encourage us to repent. I'm not saying God is insane, by the way. I'm saying it's far beyond our ability to understand. This is what God says about himself, and he says it again and again. This is what God reveals about himself, and he reveals it again and again. This is what God does and does and does again and again. He loves us past the point when we deserve it. He loves us even when we flagrantly rebel and blatantly don't deserve it. Peter reminds us of this. 1 Peter 3.20, Peter reminds us, when the world was ripe for judgment, back in Genesis 6, God delayed how long? More than a century. People enjoyed God's ongoing goodness for 120 years. They had 120 years, humanity did, that we didn't deserve. Why? So they could hear Noah preaching about repentance. So that they would have time and time and more time to respond. Israel. The main character of the Old Testament is Israel. In fact, the main character of Scripture, if you think about it, is Israel. Jesus is the hero. Israel is the main character. What do we see happening to Israel every week in Isaiah? Every Wednesday when we get together, what do we hear? God is promising judgment. God is assuring Israel, wrath is coming. But God almost every week is also saying, but not yet, and not completely. For 800 years, eight centuries, God delays his justice, his righteous judgment against Israel. Why? We don't have to guess. He tells us, Isaiah 48, 9, for the glory of his name. This is what I want the world to know about me. Israel's the main character, but I'm the hero, and I want people to know about my love. I want people to know about my mercy. I want people to know that I'm steadfast and faithful. That's who I am. 
And that's what I'm putting on display. That's what I'm using Israel to teach. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul says, hey, that's my story too. That's who I am. I am who I am, Paul says, only because that's who God is. He says, I am a billboard for God's patience. I was an enemy of Christ, persecuting the church, murdering God's children. And here I am today, preaching the gospel. Traveling all over the world, telling people about the salvation that's available through Christ Jesus. Why? Why do I get to do that, Paul says? Because God was patient with me. Because God revealed his goodness to me. Because God gave me time. Now, Paul hasn't written that yet. He hasn't written 1 Timothy by the time he's writing Romans. But he already knew it. He, he, he already understood it. Paul hasn't written that yet. Peter has not yet written what he would write about the same time. Seven years later, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow. Your Bible might say slack keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is, here it is again, patient with you. Why? He doesn't want anyone to perish. He desires that everyone would come to repentance. This is what Paul is saying in verse 4. You're enjoying a quiet season, a healthy season, a prosperous season. You're enjoying God's goodness. It doesn't mean God approves of what's going on. It doesn't mean that God is rewarding you. What it means is that God loves you. And he might be being patient with you. God loves us, not because of our actions, but because of his goodness. God loves us, and in his goodness, he often holds off, delays pouring his wrath upon us, hoping that in his graciousness and his mercy, we'll be convinced, we'll be drawn, we'll repent. I was a lot like Paul. I was another poster child for God's patience. You know, Paul, Paul was a Pharisee, student of Gamaliel, leading rabbi of his day. Knew the Bible better than any of us, probably better than all of us put together. And he refused to see Jesus in it until Jesus was standing right in front of him. That was me. In some ways, I was worse than Paul. Because I had the benefit of the New Testament that Paul helped write. And I saw Jesus in it. I had teachers who pointed him out to me in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I started studying the Bible in 1992, and the Bible revealed Jesus to me. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see him. I wasn't ready to yield to him. It would take two, almost three years before I finally surrendered. I told myself I needed more data. I needed more information. I wasn't ready yet to trust him. What I really wasn't ready to do, if I'm being honest, I wasn't ready to let go of my sin. You know, we, talked, we talked in Hebrews about, about the illustration of a chair. 
I believed the chair was real. It's, I believed it was solid. I understood how it was constructed. I had no doubt it would hold my weight. I wasn't ready to leave all of my sin over here and actually sit in the chair over there. And that went on for more than two years, almost three years. Almost three years I didn't deserve. Three years that I deserved wrath and, and deserved more wrath with every passing week. Because over those two, almost three years, I kept listening to the Bible. I kept listening to really solid Bible teaching. And at the same time as all of that was going on, I kept choosing my sin. The greater the light, the greater the judgment, right? I kept seeking out light, and at the same time, I kept wallowing in sin. I kept heaping more wrath upon myself. And God was patient. I read a story about a family that bought a house intending to live in it, but it had previously been a rental property, and when they showed up to move in, the prior tenant was still there, refused to leave. And the laws in the state, I want to say Washington, it might have been California, the, the, the laws in whatever state it was made it very difficult to evict this person. It was a long, complicated process. I was like that guy. You know, bad enough that I just, I just kept doing something that I knew was wrong. You know, the guy knew that he wasn't entitled to live in the house anymore. He had a right to be there, but no one was going to stop him immediately. And even when people offered to pay for him to move, pay for a new place for him to live, pay for his time and his trouble and his inconvenience, he just wanted to keep staying in that wrong place. That was me. I understood that Jesus had paid for me to move. He purchased a new place for me to live. He'd given me blessings I didn't deserve. And I didn't want to move from where I was squatting. That was me, that was Paul, that was all of us to some extent. Deserving of God's wrath, but enjoying his mercy instead. Because in his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, God gives us time to repent. We don't know how much time. But he gives us time we don't deserve to switch sides. To, to, to side with God against ourselves. To align with God against our sin. That's what Paul is saying in verse 4. That's the assumption He's making and, 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 and assuming that we're making about God's goodness, what it is and why it is, and why we experience him being good even before we turn to him. But some people struggle with that idea. Just like some people struggle with the idea of wrath, some people really have a hard time with the idea of God's goodness. They deny it, they get agitated about it because this morning's message is brought to you, brought to you by the letter A. People struggle with it because from their perspective, from their vantage point, from where they're at, they can't see it. And because they can't see it, they reject Paul's whole premise. Paul, you're telling me I shouldn't assume the health, wealth, prosperity that I'm enjoying right now isn't God's approval. 
I'm drawing the wrong conclusion about God's goodness. Just one problem, Rabbi. I'm not enjoying health, wealth, and prosperity right now. My life is a dumpster fire. So don't talk to me about the goodness of God. Or do. I don't care, but don't expect me to listen. Don't expect me to believe it, because I don't see it. What I see is me alone in the world, me alone against the world. I hear that a lot. I'm guessing you do two versions of that. And I'm guessing, like me, you hear it from people in the world and you hear it from people in church. Where is the goodness of God people keep talking about? The goodness that preacher guy keeps preaching about, I don't see it. I'm sure there's some people in Andover wondering this morning, goodness? What goodness? Any idea I had about God's goodness blew away with my house. And if I come to church and people start off with that God is good all the time because all the time God is good stuff, I'm going to lose it. How do, we, how do we answer them? You can't just blow the question off. And we're not going to, listen, we're not going to satisfy them with a bumper sticker. Even when life isn't great, God is good. It's true. But just saying that isn't going to convince anyone who doesn't already believe it. It's not going to convince anyone who feels like they have a pretty good reason not to. We're not going to satisfy people with a bumper sticker. And we're not going to convince them just machine gunning verses in their direction. Hey, Psalm 119.68, God is good, he does good. Take refuge in him. James 1.17, God is the source of all that is good. Genesis 1.31, everything that God makes is good. Mark 10.18, nothing good, no one is good except for God. So come, Psalm 34.8, Taste and see that the Lord's good. All of it is true, but it's, at the same time, it's not enough. We need to do better than that, or what Paul says next won't make sense. And what he says after that will make even less sense. Paul's building a house here. He's stacking idea upon idea upon idea in Romans. And here in these early chapters, he's laying the foundation. Wrath, goodness, those are the foundational concepts. If someone rejects the premise that, that those are true, that those are real, that God's wrath or goodness even exist, or that Paul has the right understanding of them, he's going to be building a house on sand. He's going to be building a house on a way shaky foundation, and it'll all come crashing down. As soon as somebody says, taste and see that the Lord is good, and that person responds with, yeah, I have. It tastes like sour milk. How do we respond? Let's take a moment and consider God's affirmation of his goodness. Paul assumes we already know this. And maybe we do, but let's take a moment to remind ourselves. What is true about God's goodness and how do we respond to understandable objections people might have about it? Maybe the most important thing to remember and to help people remember is we need to not confuse God who made the world with the world God made, especially in its current condition. The world God made is perfect. Today it's busted real good. The world God made was perfect, not so much anymore. Today it's broken. Because when creation rejected its creator, we broke the universe. 
Nothing is as it should be. Nothing works right. Now life is painful, sometimes awful, none of which is God's doing. All of which is our doing. We wanted the world our way. Hey, now we've got it. The world that God made perfect today is broken. The people that God made perfect today are broken. We're scared. We're selfish. We're sinners. And that predisposes us to respond to the bad things in the world by doing bad things. The world hurts us, we hurt back. People hurt us, we hurt back. Hurting people hurt people. When creation fell, we fell, and today we're born into sin. And we keep trying to, this is the thing about being born into sin, we keep trying to use sin to solve our problems. We use sin to run from our problems. We use sin to feel better. And in the process, we make things worse for everyone, including ourselves. But, but what about God? The world is broken. People are broken. Are you saying that God's broken? Because that's not what you say. You say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It doesn't sound like he's broken, but if he's so good, why is he allowing so much bad? He's, he's good. But good is not all that he is. He's good, but he's also waiting. Remember what we know about wrath. If, if he asserted the fullness of his goodness, he'd also have to assert the fullness of his wrath, and then it would be game over. He's waiting. And here's something that we don't talk about a lot. Even while he's waiting... And even while he's balancing goodness with patience and allowing evil and suffering to invade the world and to invade our lives, we don't often ask ourselves, how much is he restraining? How much pain and evil and suffering are we not seeing? Because God's holding that back as well. I read an article this week by Randy Elkhorn. I'll post it to our Facebook page. Randy Elkhorn, if you've heard of him, you've probably heard of him in connection with his writing about heaven, because he does that really well. But he also writes a good deal about good and evil and pain and suffering. And he turns the question around in a really interesting way. He says, we're all obsessed about how can a good God allow suffering, but how much evil and suffering would we be seeing if God wasn't good. The example that he used that caught my eye because of how I began in ministry was September 11th. My first day in ministry, many of you know, was September 12th when I was living in New Jersey. But on September 11th, nearly 2,700 people lost their lives in the Twin Towers. Almost six times that many escaped. Why do we focus on the first number and not the second? For many people, the first symptom of a heart attack is death. But there are people in the room right now who have survived heart attacks, who have defied the odds. Friday night, an F3 was on the ground for 21 minutes. Traveled 12 and a half miles in a populated area, destroyed or damaged almost 500 buildings. 
And it's easy to focus on the destruction and the chaos and the cost, and it's not insignificant. But no one was killed. Only one person seriously injured. You see the point, right? 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. God in his goodness is restraining so much chaos, so much lawlessness, so much evil. He, I mean, he has to be, doesn't he? What does the Bible say about the human heart? What do we know about our heart? Utterly, thoroughly, what? Wicked. If our hearts were allowed to run free in the world, given free reign, without limit or constraint, without God's goodness hedging it in, wouldn't war and crime and terrorism and evil and suffering all have to be way, way worse than they are? In fact, Alcorn goes on to say, a big part of why evil and suffering preoccupy us to the extent that they do, a big part of why they seem so awful, so very, very wrong to us, they're not our normal. They're not our normal. For most of us, pain and suffering are not our default condition. They're an unwelcome intruder that invades and disrupts our mostly peaceful lives. I've been really frustrated on and off since I had COVID in February. And as I continue to deal with the after effects, been frustrated. Sometimes I still get frustrated. Why did God let this happen? You're messing up my ministry, God. There's a lot of stuff to do. Surely you see that. Just trying to serve you here. I focus on the part where, where I'm sick or, or still symptomatic. I, 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 I can lose sight of the part where I'm mostly recovered. And I mostly recovered pretty quickly compared to some people, compared to some brothers and sisters in our fellowship. I lose sight of that. I lose sight of the fact that the two years I avoided the stupid thing. Instead of thanking God for that, I get frustrated at the interruption. I see the exception, and I look past the rule. Steve next week is, is, is going to be here talking um, about his ministry. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I invited him here, it's personal for me. My mom, a lot of you know this, died of cancer a few years ago. Easy for me to focus on that. God, why did you let cancer take my mom? Her dad lived to almost 100. You took her, she was barely in her 70s. Less often do I stop and remember, she didn't get cancer until her 60s, and she was a pack-a-day smoker her whole life. Most of her first 60-some years, she was in perfect health, even though her mother died of cancer in her 50s. And when she did get cancer, she beat it twice. She had 10 years that the doctors didn't expect her to have. Got to meet her grandkids. Her grandkids got to know her. It's perspective. Perspective. C.S. Lewis has an illustration. He says, send a small group of people to live in a building. Tell half of them they're going to a hotel. Tell the other half they're going to prison. The half you tell are going to a hotel, they're going to look around and say, this is awful. 
This is horrible. This, this is unacceptable. Who do I talk to? The people that you tell that they're going to a prison. This is actually pretty nice. This is, this is surprisingly comfortable. That's how people in wealthy churches end up clutching their pearls, wailing and gnashing their teeth when the stock market drops half a percent. While churches in parts of Africa that deal with famine and genocide on a daily basis rejoice. Perspective. If we choose to focus on pain and suffering, yeah, that'll eclipse everything else. If we start with the presupposition, well, I don't, I don't deserve this. This is wrong. We lose sight of how many bad things aren't happening. Because God in his mercy is holding them back. And why? Why is God holding evil and suffering back? Why doesn't he just do away with it? Why doesn't he just wipe it out? Why is God, who's supposed to be good, tolerating so many things that so very aren't? For all the reasons we've been talking about. What did Paul say about God back when he was talking about his goodness? What did, what did, he, what did he call out right next to that? Forbearance and long-suffering. What Peter calls patience. God in his goodness is allowing a little bit of wrath to slip through, sure. But he's holding off most of it. Because wrath is what happens when holiness meets sin. And there's a lot of sin in the world. God is holding it back. In his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, he's letting this broken world continue. He's letting broken people continue to sin to give time for the world, for the people in the world to make another choice, to give them reason to make another choice. God's hoping this broken world will encourage people to look up and look out and to seek out another world. He's hoping broken people will eventually grow tired of doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. And look for another way to live. He's opening with, with enough time, and yes, with enough pain, with enough experience of futility, people like Paul and me and you will look up for our sin and see Jesus and say, oh, that's, that's goodness. God is hoping that we'll look up from our sin and choose repentance. He's hoping we'll look up from our sin and run to the cross and embrace forgiveness. That, 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 that's God's overarching goal for this period of history, this age of grace, that people would see goodness and reject evil, that people would see goodness and choose repentance, that people would see goodness and desire the one who is good. Evil and suffering don't prove God isn't good. They prove he's not only good. God is good, but he's also patient. He's willing to let his goodness work. Willing to allow the time it takes for it to be seen. Marveled at. Desired. He's willing to allow time for his goodness to draw people out. For his goodness to convince people to cry out, you are good and I am not. Save me. 
Save me now. What's our response? Let's turn to application as we wrap up this morning. The first and most important application of what we've been reading is what we just said. The first response any of us need to do, we need to cry out. We need to acknowledge God's goodness. We need to confess our need for forgiveness. God, you are good and I am not. You are good and I've chosen not. You are good and I've wanted no part of it. And I've set myself apart from you. And I want to come home. The most important thing we can do is recognize we're still drawing breath only because God is patient. Only because he hasn't let his holiness touch our sin. We can duck. And most of you know this, but if you don't, this is the most important thing you'll hear this morning. So come back. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. His wrath happens when holiness touches our sin. We will endure God's wrath for our sin and sinfulness forever unless someone stands between his wrath and us. Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus traded places with us. On the cross, Jesus said, I will take all of the wrath for all of their sin. Let them have all of my righteousness. Look at me and see them in their sinfulness and punish me accordingly. Look at them and see me in my righteousness and love them accordingly. Have you said yes to that? Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus did that for you? And if you'd been the only person who had ever lived, he still would have done that for you. If you haven't, before you leave here, would you talk to someone about that? Before you head back out into the world and your mind is immediately flooded with ideas and images and philosophies, and if, if right now this is clear and making sense, Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. We'll be in the corners of the room. I'll probably be in the hall. Talk to us before you leave this morning. But assuming that you have, assuming that you've taken that step, assuming that you've cried out, then the next most important application of our reading today is amplification. If God's overarching purpose during this season is to reveal his goodness and draw people to repentance, it follows that's our purpose too. Big part of it anyway. To put God's goodness on display. To let it be seen in us. So that God's goodness would challenge people and confront people and call people to repentance. How do we do that? Having tasted and seen that the Lord, yes, is good. How can we help other people experience that goodness for themselves? Three points. The first, seek the goodness of God. It's all around us. 
But we also get to pray for it. God desires to give good gifts to his children, right? We get to ask, God, show me your goodness. Meet me with your goodness. We get to ask. We get to ask, God, show me my ministry. God, open doors that I'd have opportunity. We can ask for health and prosperity as long as we let God answer according to his will. As long as we let him define what is good, there's nothing we can't ask for. We also get to ask for goodness for others. We get to ask for things that are good, not for us, but for someone else. And we get to talk to people and tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm asking God to be good to you. I'm believing that he will. I'm trusting. He already has figured out how he's going to. Let people see that we're believing and trusting in a prayer hearing, prayer answering God. We can ask for God's goodness. We can ask God to show us goodness when we don't understand. What is good here, God? What is love here? What is right here? How do I love the people in front of me? What would you have me do? We can admit that we don't know and still have access to goodness. We get to seek it. Second thing we get to do, we get to see it. Because it's all around us. Creation, the church, the evil that isn't happening, that's being restrained. If, if we have eyes to see, his goodness is all around us. See it, pause, notice it, rejoice in it. Sometimes we have to squint at it. But it's always there. There was a children's book some years ago, The Moon is Always Round. Do you know it? It was, it was written about the death of a child, written by the parents. And, and the illustration in, in the book is, you know, depending on the time of the month, the moon can be full and bright and calling attention to itself. It can be half bright and, and there, but, you know, just kind of there. Sometimes it's just a sliver. It's inconspicuous. But even when it's just a sliver, if we see the light and, and, and we, we decide to look at it, you can trace the circle. Because the moon is always there. The moon never changes. It's always the same. If, and if we're willing to see it, we, we'll recognize it for what it is. That God loves us and is loving us. There's good in the world, and it's happening to us. Yeah, there's places that evil is happening to. There's places that sin is prevailing, but there are places that it isn't. And when we can't see it anywhere else in the world, we can surely see it in his word. We can surely see it in the history of our lives, God's goodness. See his goodness. Remind ourselves to observe it, to recognize it, to rejoice in it. And when we do, yet celebrate the goodness of God. Thank God for the goodness that we see. Thank God for the evil that we don't. Thank God for the goodness that we're not equipped to perceive. See goodness and acknowledge the source. See goodness and rest in it. 
choosing to believe goodness testifies to a good, good God who's for us, not against us. And tell people that. Thank God and tell people that. It's God who is working in us. Yet not I, but Christ through me. Share God's goodness. Share the goodness that God has given us with who? With the poor. Share the time, the treasure, the talent that God has given us with the church. The greatest evangelical vehicle in the history of the church is the church. Share God's goodness with our enemies who are expecting wrath. Fool them, surprise them, withhold wrath, bury them with love, smother them with goodness. And tell them why. Even if they don't understand it, remain long-suffering. Keep on keeping on. Displaying goodness, sharing goodness, we celebrate goodness. We worship God, who is good. We declare his goodness. We declare it to him. In worshiping, we declare it to ourselves. We declare it to anyone who's paying attention. This is why we live and breathe and have our being. The goodness of God. Action step this week. Try to do those three, three things daily. Jot a note where, where, where you do your devotions. Throw something on the, on the front of your phone or on the mirror in your bathroom, someplace where you'll trip over it. Hey, today, have I sought God's goodness? Have I intentionally looked for it? Have I observed it? Have I seen it? Have I celebrated it? Do that daily. You'll be a different person when we're back here next Sunday. But time's getting away from us and we want to celebrate communion this morning. And it fits, right? I mean, talk about, about goodness of God coexisting with pain and suffering. we got to talk about the cross. Talk about the goodness of God and his pain and suffering coexisting, dwelling together. That's Jesus. And on the cross, his pain and suffering revealed the goodness of God, right? And just like Paul has been saying in verse 4, on the cross, Jesus used pain and suffering to draw people to repentance. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, where, why have you forsaken me? Many people misunderstand that to be Jesus feeling abandoned, Jesus feeling wronged, Jesus asking a question. But he wasn't. He was pointing us to the answer. He was pointing us to Psalm 22 that describes the crucifixion, but that culminates in verse 24. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. When we cry out... 
God, deliver me from the evil of the world. Deliver me from the evil of myself. Deliver me from the evil of my soul. He heard. And he rescued us out of our affliction. He heard us. He forgives us. He, he removes evil from us. And allows us to continue manifesting, testifying to his goodness. Father, we're grateful. We're so very grateful. We're overwhelmed. When we ponder the cross, the details of it still fresh in our mind from Good Friday. The agony. The wrath that you bore was your goodness. For your joy, for your good pleasure. For centuries, you delayed your wrath. And for centuries more, you've delayed your coming. That generation after generation after generation would have an opportunity to stare at that paradox. Creator of the universe, bleeding on a tree you breathed into existence, becoming sin, bearing wrath, treated as evil for the sake of those who were. When we seek your goodness, we don't have to go far. When we remember your goodness, we see it on the cross.